Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the show, we have a really fascinating guest. His name is Lawrence Levy. He is the CFO of Pixar, has a new book out about his time there. Essentially, he was recruited by Steve Jobs. Uh, He's working in his office, Electronics for Imaging. He's a corporate lawyer uh, from London to to Harvard to uh, out into... (laughs) Uh, Silicon Valley, and he's working at his desk one day, and the phone rings, and it's Steve Jobs. Hey, I have a company I'd like you to come, uh, like to talk to you about. Um, He thought it was going to be about Next. It turns out to be about Pixar. And he wrestles with the idea. Jobs' reputation precedes him. But he goes and gets a tour of Pixar, which, you know, is a horrible part of town across from an oil refinery. It looks like a dump. What is, why do I want to have anything to do with this on the wrong? It's a long, ugly commute. There was nothing appealing to it. And then he gets inside the building and starts to see the magic of, of Pixar and just the collection of brilliant, creative people, both on the technology side and the storytelling side. And early version of Toy Story, a few minutes he gets to see um, as part of his tour, and he's just, you know, we take it for granted today how brilliant these movies are, but he's just blown away. Imagine in 1994, 95, you see five minutes of Pixar, even uh, of Toy Story, even a rough, uh, unfinished version of it, and it's just mind-blowing. It's unlike anything ever before, um, and ultimately wrestles with the question and decides to join the company. And he describes, bluntly, the company was a disaster from a business perspective. They had all these different lines, none of which could scale, and ultimately comes up with a creative business plan in order to turn the company into a real business, uh, which really (laughs) relied on, all we have to do is shut down these three lines of business that aren't scalable and will never make money pivot from technology and hardware into the entertainment business, and then come out with a series of movies, each of which has to be spectacular and record-breaking at the box office. Easy peasy. How hard could that be? Well, it turns... Oh, and P.S. Take the company public with a mercurial owner who just got tossed out of his previous company called Apple. And it turns out that his plan worked out really well. All sorts of things come out in the book he wrote called To Pixar and Beyond. You learn about all sorts of things you had no idea about about Pixar, about the entertainment business, about Apple, about Steve Jobs. It's really a fascinating story, and I had a great time um, speaking with him as as an old Mac head and a huge fan of Pixar's films. I, I found it to be just fascinating, and I think you will too. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Pixar's CFO. Lawrence Levy. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Pixar, and I can't imagine there's anybody listening who is, 14 of Pixar's films are amongst the 50 highest grossing animated films of all time. You're familiar with names such as Toy Story, Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, WALL-E, Inside Out, Monsters, Cars, it just goes on and on. The studios earned 16 Academy Awards, 7 Golden Globes, 11 Grammys. He is also the author of a new book titled To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs. Lawrence Levy, welcome to Bloomberg. Uh, hi, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have to tell you, I, I, I'm almost done with the book, and I've really been enjoying it. Let's start with you. You're born in London. How do you end up working in Silicon Valley as a lawyer? Well, yes, I was born and raised in London. I moved in my late teens over to the United States, and then I ended up in university. I was at Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana, where I started business and accounting. Then I go into Harvard Law School, and then I start my law practice, and I was practicing on the East Coast, and I was not happy with it. This is sort of in my Mm -hmm. mid-20s. And I'm like, you know, what do I really want to do? And at that time, I was married. We had a one-year-old baby, and 
there was a request in the law firm to represent a software company and nobody was interested. This is like, you know, in 1987, no one was interested in representing software companies. They didn't mean anything. And my hand shut up and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so I did. This was just a tiny little company. I don't even remember its name, but I could see that, you know, by doing this, that this was a sort of a land of opportunity. And then this I- This technology thing yeah, is going to be big one This day. technology thing is going to go somewhere. Even the <laughs> law is associated with the protection of software and this kind of stuff hadn't been sorted out yet. And so, but I'm in the wrong place. You know, where shall I go? And we had never been to California. We'd never really even heard of Silicon Valley, but that was the place. So- I came out to Silicon Valley and I interviewed with um, the biggest law firm out there and the founding partner of that firm, Larry Sonsini, who's featured in the book. Sure, Wilson Sonsini, uh, legendary law firm. Legendary law firm. And I, I said to Larry, you know, I just want to come out here and do technology transactions. And he said, you know, we have no one specializing in it. It's growing and growing. I'll let you do it. And that was the start of what became the first and the biggest technology transactions law practice in, in the legal business. That's, mm. that's worthy of a book unto itself. <laughs> Let's talk about the phone call out of the blue from Steve Jobs. What was that like? So imagine that I'm sitting in my office. At, uh, by that time, I was working for a company called Electronics for Imaging that mm -hmm. had been one of my clients, and I went to, to work for them, and I ended up becoming their CFO, and uh, we took that company public. They're still around. It's a great company. And my phone rings. And I pick up the phone and I hear on the other end of the line, hi, this is Steve Jobs. I saw your picture in a magazine a couple of years ago. I thought we'd work together someday. I have a little company I want to tell you about. And I immediately thought to myself, Next. He's talking about Next Computer. Sure. Now, this is some context. This was after he's tossed out unceremoniously from Apple. Eight years later, this is 1994. He's tossed out... Um, you know, some years before you went to do Next Computer, but two years before, like in 1993, Next had shut down its hardware business, mm -hmm. which, so it was basically rumored to be done. And I thought to myself, okay, he, he wants some help to turn around Next. And, but then he says the company is called Pixar. And inside I'm kind of going, what's Pixar? And outwardly, I kind of said, that sounds really cool. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to learn about it. But, you know, Pixar was so unknown at that point that, you know, maybe you sort of barely had heard of it. Um, but that was how the, that was how the, everything got started. So, so let's briefly talk about the genesis of, of Pixar. Uh, George Lucas, while working on Star Wars and other films, wanted his own facility. Why did he cleave the Pixar portion off and keep Skywalker Labs or Studios or whatever it's called for himself? I think he cleaved it off for the because it was very expensive to run, uh, and so I don't think he wanted to continue the investment in the computer graphics division, and so um, and so that's when Ed Catmull and Avi Ray Smith, you know, decided to sort of try to take it as a spinoff, and they needed an investor to help with that. So Jobs invites you to come be the CFO at Pixar. At that point, his reputation wasn't what it was today. He was sort of an enfant terrible. How concerned were you about that before you said yes to join Pixar? I was extremely concerned. That's why the, the first chapter in the book is, is called, Why Would You Do That? Because that's what a lot of people told me. It, it was maybe the lowest point in, in, in Steve's career. You know, he'd had a string of basically four failures in the, you know, the Apple Lisa computer, then the original Apple Macintosh computer that had a very hard time finding a market. Uh, um, the next computer, the Pixar imaging computer. So there were books being written about, you know, him as done. Finished. And um, so I, I was very concerned about it. So you go to Pixar, you, you meet everybody before you agree to say yes. Yeah. What was your impression? Well, it's funny, you know, Pixar was at that time in Point Richmond, California, which from the point of view of Silicon Valley was kind of like in the middle of nowhere. And so, and it was in, a, it's across the street from an oil refinery and it's a dumpy building and there's nothing remarkable or inspiring about it whatsoever. And so I went in there scratching my head and, you know, I meet Ed Catmull and a couple of other people and then- John Lasseter. Uh, John Lasseter. And then they take me to see this sort of footage of Toy Story, which is a year before Toy Story comes out. And it's just a few minutes and it's unfinished and there's no music and the voices aren't final. And so there's all these caveats about what it's going to be. And I'm in a screening room that's full of like couches that look like they've been picked up from the end of a driveway. And I'm like, what's going on here? And the film begins to roll and I'm kind of like mesmerized by this. I'm looking at this saying to myself, 
somewhere in this building there is magic i don't know where it is or what it is but something is going on here i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my special guest today is lawrence levy he was the cfo of pixar and he is the author of to pixar and beyond my unlikely journey with steve jobs let's talk a little bit about pixar when you first arrived there they seem to have a lot of different businesses going on but entertainment was almost an afterthought. Tell us, tell us what greeted you when you first joined the company. Yeah, well, entertainment was an afterthought. You know, Pixar was created as a graphics company, and it was hardware, it was software, hardware, software. It made a computer called the Pixar Imaging Computer, and so it was in these different things. It it was making this render man software, which was rendering these high end graphics uh, and creating them into computer images. It was doing uh, animated short films. It was doing commercials. It was doing this sort of thing called, there's a lot of focus on Toy Story. Um, so there was kind of a lot going on. And I realized right away, you know, I had kind of a lot to learn there. There was, And so when I first got there, I was just like, you know, I'm not going to make any decisions. I'm not going to do anything. I literally took, I got a pad of paper and a pen and I asked everybody, can I just follow you around? and and see what's going on and i literally did that you know i spent a, a lot of time just you know sitting listening you know and just taking notes so i could sort of start to understand you know what was going on at the company you, you look at three businesses the hardware mm-hmm. the the software the short commercial yeah. mm-hmm. business and none of them scale to anything remotely approaching a public company none of them could scale they were amazing the hardware had already been closed down the, but the anime commercials the um animated short films uh, the render man software they couldn't scale and the reason was because they're too high end. You know, there was like how many people in the world at that point in time were going to pay this very large amount for this unbelievable software, you know, to render an unbelievably high quality image. You know, just studios, you know, 30 to 50 studios, not enough to build a business. So you decide the future of the company, if if it's going to have a future, is to pivot from technology to applying the technology to be a unique entertainment company. How hard was it to get Steve Jobs to who is essentially a, a a tech slash marketing guy at heart, how hard was it to get him to buy in on that vision? Yeah, well, decide is probably a bit of an overstatement. It was a, a strategy by default in a way. So you look around the company and uh, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. So yeah, then you look at this animated feature film thing, and so I started to learn about that, and I'm like, well. This is the worst possible business strategy. <laughs> um, so you, you specifically yeah. write, in order for this to be successful, we have to have a string of blockbuster hits. And then you go through the numbers. And, and since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937, the two biggest hits that were animated were both Disney. One is Aladdin at $217 million. The other is Lion King at $313 million. And in order for the Pixar business model to make sense, you have to come pretty close to those two, you know, in in almost a, a three quarters of a century, every three or four years. Yeah, I mean, and it, it it's worse than that in a sense, because if you looked at the Disney model, which I did, and I was like, why didn't, why aren't there more independent animated feature film? It's not like animated feature films is a new product. Right. Right. It's been around for Steamboat two, Willie, for two generations, back, yeah. right? 1939, Disney releases Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the first animated feature film. So it's like every studio had an opportunity to get into that business, and none of them are in it. And it turned out that even Disney couldn't make it work. Because, you know, he has a good run from 1939 to like 1945. He's got, you know, Bambi and Snow White and Dumbo and all these beloved films. But he couldn't keep that engine running financially. So he diversifies, right? He diversifies. He goes into 1955. He goes into theme parks. Uh, Early 1950s, he goes into television with the wonderful world of Walt Disney. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, He goes into distribution. He sets up Buena Vista Distribution. He's trying to diversify away from animation because live of the action film he goes a live action film you know mary poppins and this and that so he built this diversified media company and so i'm looking around and not even disney is a good example of of huh. an independent animated feature film but um you know 
you, you know, you're sort of looking at it qualitatively and quantitatively, that was the only shot. And you're you're exactly right that in order to make that work, those films had to be, you know, blockbusters, pretty much every single one of them. And that's what the business plan called for. You could call it crazy, right? You could say, well, that's a crazy bet to take. And I would agree with that. But, but what other choice was What there? other choice do you have? That, you was, that was, yeah, and you mm, make that clear mm, in the yeah. book. So- so before we get to Toy Story and the subsequent films, a, a big part of the middle of the book is about the Pixar IPO. That sounded like that was a really fascinating experience. Yeah, well, it was, you know, how, and so the, the idea for the IPO essentially comes about from, do you want to, it sort of all flows from this strategy. So you want to build an independent animation film company. That means you have to finance your own films. Those films cost a lot. So could be, you know, at the time, $75 million, $100 million, you know. Right. So how are you going to get that kind of money, right? And so no lender is going to provide that kind of money, you know, for that kind of product. So you've got to go to the equity markets, capital markets. And so, but the business model of Pixar had none of the characteristics that, that investors and investment banks So it wasn't like. steady. It wasn't reliable. It required a lot of exactly. one-off success stories yes. that had to be the best of their type. It, it Really, in advance, it's amazing anybody was willing to give you money. It, you laid out an impossible. Here's we're going to try and do something that's impossible, yeah. and then repeat it every three years for the next twenty years. Yeah, and my take at the time was in the word you said, which is layered out. Just layered out, right? Um, put it out there because, and then investors or investment banks, they'll decide. You know, I don't have to decide for them. I just have to um, lay it out. You know, Steve presented, you know, grand vision for what Pixar could be. I would lay out all of these details. Together we 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 presented, you know, this this vision and this possibility. And then it was sort of up to investors to decide. And, you know, fortunately some decided to go along for that. So Toy Story comes out, it it comes out just before Thanksgiving. And you're hoping for a ridiculous ten million. Steve is hoping for fifteen to twenty million opening weekend yeah what happens so the opening weekend you know it turns out to be you know 38 million and you know just far beyond know, anybody's far beyond any says you know by today's standards that's not even even that huge but in that time for that film it was like you know grand slam home run in the bottom of the ninth i mean it just couldn't have been better we were just giddy from it I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Lawrence Levy. He is the CFO of Pixar, now part of entertainment giant Disney, and he is the author of a new book, To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what took place with your relationship with Disney. There, there's a line in the book that I really enjoyed. You said the darkest day in your life is when you were had already been working at Pixar and you reviewed the contract between Pixar and Disney. Why was that so awful? Yeah, well, the darkest day in my career, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, Disney had, Pixar had entered an agreement in uh, 1991, a few years before I came, for the making of Toy Story. And you would have thought that me, a you know, well-trained and experienced lawyer would sort of understand what that was all about. And I certainly had a chance to look at it, but it was written in this sort of arcane language of entertainment law, which totally I Totally different from any other type of law. It's totally. its own rules, its own everything. It's its own language, everything. Because I didn't know that at that moment, <laughs> right? So I just thought, hey, you know, I can't, under I don't understand everything this says, I'll figure it out later, kind of thing. That's that's what I said to myself, how bad can it be, right? Uh -oh. Well, anytime you ask that question, you usually find out. Yeah, usually find out. And it probably, as I, it probably turns out to be a good thing that I went in naive, because if I had known what I learned later about it, I can't imagine I would have taken that job. <laughs> um, so, but it just, it turned out when I did understand it, that Disney had effectively tied Pixar up for what, three films, which could have been 12, 14 years, and with almost no chance of sort of making money on those films, that would be anything like what you would need to grow a business. So go over some of the details. They own the rights to the sequels, the merchandising, the lion's share of the profits. Everything. I mean, even awful. worse. I mean, like they they had sort of exclusivity provisions. That Not even right of first <laughs> refusal. It was them or nobody. Yeah, them or nobody. So it was like, you know, Pixar is not even allowed to work on other, other film projects, you know. And I was asking, you know, 
the lawyer, you know, Sam Fisher about that. And he's saying, yeah, because, you know, like if, if Pixar's working on other things, they could take their better people and put them on other things. And Disney wanted to make sure has access to their best people. And I was like, but that ties up a whole company. We right. could hire a thousand animators and they could only work for Disney. And, but, you know, my, my protests were, were for naught. It was what it was. So you, you create a business strategy, mm -hmm. which you describe as four pillars. Mm -hmm. In order to allow the company to grow, you have to change this contract with Disney. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, briefly, you have to capture more of the profits on mm -hmm. each film. You have to raise capital so you can self-finance, which is part of the way to get to that greater profit share. You have to double or more the output of films. It can't be every four years. And you have to turn Pixar into its own standalone brand. Yes. Mm -hmm. How did you go about negotiating that with Disney? Because they could have said, no, we have a contract. Go away. They absolutely could have. And we learned that there are two things that talk in Hollywood. Um, one is success, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a success, you're a celebrity of any kind, you have some clout. And the second thing that talks is money. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so all of a sudden, from the IPO, Pixar had money. Mm -hmm. From Toy Story, Pixar had success. And that means that in that, you know, that is going to get attention. And so then Disney, you know, it was Michael Eisner at the time, is sort of going to start to think about, okay, um, Pixar is willing to invest in its own films, right? And so instead of Disney investing 100%, you know, maybe Pixar is willing to invest 50%. That's of interest. Secondly, you know, I'd want to keep closer attention to these guys because now they're successful. I don't want to risk losing them. And mm -hmm. so that opened the door for a negotiation. Now that said, as I recount in the book, that negotiation was pretty rocky, mm -hmm. um, but but it opened the door. And and just to reiterate, so you, we mentioned earlier, Toy Story opens their first weekend at $38 million, yeah. far better than anyone mm -hmm. was even hoping in the company. How successful was Toy Story following that $38 million opening as the first feature film for Pixar? Well, from a box office point of view, it was unbelievably successful. It did like $190 million in the domestic box office. It did well internationally. It was the biggest film of the year. So from that perspective, it, it couldn't have been better. Doesn't mean it made Pixar a lot of money uh, because it was still under the original agreement with Disney. So when mm -hmm. you renegotiated the, the agreement, how, what did that change to? Well, when we renegotiated, it radically changed. And so if you looked at it on the original agreement, maybe Pixar was going to depend how it worked out, but 10, 12% of the profits from the films mm -hmm. under the new agreement, it was going to be 50%. So and you were putting up half the financing And we were putting well. up half the financing, but- What about but, marketing, mm -hmm. sequels, ownership of, of rights, et cetera? That was, you know, Disney was always going to do the marketing, but that Pixar regained sort of control over the, the creative side. So the sequels and those things. Mm -hmm. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lawrence Levy. He is the CFO or former CFO of Pixar, currently the author of the book To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs. So in the beginning of the book, I learned something fascinating. I'm a, a longstanding Apple fanboy, Mac head. I thought I knew a lot about Apple. I did not know that it was Pixar that turned Steve Jobs into a billionaire, not Apple. Describe what that impact on Jobs was like. Well, this was one of the inspirations for writing the book, actually. I long known that this is a great story. I told it to people privately and publicly, and it always had fantastic reaction. And people were always like, you know, you should write this into a book. People don't know this story. And I, I didn't, it took me a long time to get inspired to do that. But one of the inspirations came in the aftermath of Steve's death when we have this, you know, endless amount of material, like documentaries, movies, books, you know, on him. And, you know, I began to feel that Pixar and what happened then was an afterthought in all of that you well, know, it, it really wasn't. If it wasn't for Pixar, we wouldn't be talking about Steve Jobs. That's what yeah. set him up to go back to it Apple. It was the setup. You know, it all sounded as though like, like he started at Apple, he goes back to Apple. And I was like, wait a minute, the stuff that happened to Pixar is really important to this story. And, and you know, because look, when, when I met Steve in 1994, right, uh, he hadn't had a hit in 10 years. At uh, Apple. So, you know, so Lisa mm -hmm. was an expensive failure. Yeah. 
Macintosh ultimately had its lasting effect. It did, but not the original one. Right. At the time, it wasn't going anywhere. By the 87, 88, it was a a successful... But he was already gone by then. He was already gone by then. Then he did the next computer and the Pixar image. Next computer. computer was a disaster. It went right. nowhere. Eventually, they've developed an operating system. Um, but next wasn't a successful hardware company, and it looked like Pixar was yeah. a failing hardware company. Right. So he hadn't had a hit. He had put close to fifty million dollars into Pixar and lost it all. Uh, so, so explain. I have to interrupt you here. Explain yeah. how completely unique and unusual that is and in the late 80s early 1990s in silicon valley for a founder to put 50 million dollars into his own company well it was crazy in those days i ventured to guess only steve would be steve would be the only founder to do that but you know that was steve i mean steve didn't do many things but what he did do he did with uh sort of passionate intensity that was like second to none. Did he have any other option at the time? I think a lot of that, you imply in the book that he was kind of funding this and didn't want to admit it wasn't working and didn't want to go to other venture capitalists, that this was really a partially a face-saving exercise. Well, I think so. I think there, a couple of years before I came, had he had the opportunity to sell out the company just to cut those losses, he would have. I mm-hmm. just don't think that opportunity came along. And I don't think he wanted to close it down. You know, that just wasn't his nature. Um, and so, yeah, so he hung in there. And I, that's a great credit and a, you know, a tribute to, to him as well. And so it was rare, but he still had $50 million in there. And, um, and he also had, you know, sort of a, a, sort of a toxic relationship with, with Pixar. And so you spool forward a few years, and this is really the arc of his story in the book, you know, and then all those things have changed. He's had this huge comeback um, with the Pixar IPO and, and with Toy Story. His 50 million loss is converted into now a billion dollars of, 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 um, of, of, of wealth. And, th- um, and this is when a billion dollars was real money. It's when a billion dollars, I know, that's right. <laughs> you know, when I came out, first came out to Silicon Valley, we used to talk about millionaires. Like, right. you know, now it's like, there's a billionaire, right, to even to, uh, to count. Um, and his and and his relationship with the company had changed into you know um, into really like a, a beloved you know patriarch or, of of soil. He, he gave all the employees mm-hmm. stock options, mm-hmm. probably not as much as they wanted, but they all did wildly successfully. It it it, it also all these changes, this arc of this. I'm thinking, you know, you know, had to be important. You know, I know it was important and gave him a level of confidence and knowledge of the entertainment industry that mattered a lot. When it came to going, you know, taking on the challenge at Apple. So Apple and the music industry, Apple and, and television and film, uh, the experience at Pixar was formative to that. No, well, I was there. We did it together. I mean, we imagine, I mean, I'm saying we need to go into the entertainment industry and you've got the two business guys running the company that don't know anything about <laughs> that industry. Uh, and so we literally, you know, learned it and pieced it together. And so I think when he went back to Apple, he was the only CEO that had great sort of mastery over both industries, you know, of technology and technology and entertainment. And, you know, and, and, and he was brilliant. So he put those things together in a way I'm not sure, you know, anybody else could have. So let, let's explain for people who have not yet read the book, how often you were speaking with Steve or in, you, you tell the book, you tell him early in the book that you lived around the corner from him. Mm-hmm. The two of you would go for walks all the time. He was calling the house night and day. You would yeah. frequently, like, you must have spent thousands and thousands of hours with him. Oh, I, I, I would say at that time it was just a continuous dialogue. Started first thing in the morning, ended last thing at night. You know, we have a phone by the fax machine in the kitchen, and it's every night, you know, he calls me, I call him on the weekends, come over. You know, go for walks, but it was there. It was just an ongoing dialogue, you know, and it was a back and forth. It was really a collaboration, you know. And it, and it lasted for mm-hmm. how many years? Well, it lasted throughout all the way through Pixar. So I, you know, I'm going to say all the way through the Disney acquisition, and then you know, and then it converted. You know, we became friends too, and then you know, after he was ill, I spent you know time with him then, um, and so it was it was a relationship that lasted. But it's it started with this kind of dialogue. So. We're speaking with Lawrence Levy. He was the CFO of Pixar and helped bring them public and is the author of a new book to Pixar and beyond. So tell us something about Steve Jobs that we probably don't know about him. Well, 
you probably don't know about him that I had a uh, I had a nasty accident when I first started. Broke your broke your ankle. I broke my ankle. A very bad break that required surgery, and there was a lot of pain involved. Titanium rods, titanium rods, and all that. And so uh, there would be no way to know this. But Steve was really, really concerned about this, and he was very concerned about how much pain I was in. And he would come uh, visit me in the hospital and at home afterwards with his family. And so you know, I think that was a side of Steve that that people never don't really see. Did you mm. did you read the Walter Isaacson biography? Actually, I did not. You did. Um, Have you I read any of the other biographies? I, I only recently. You know, I when the Walter Isaacson book came out so close to Steve's death, you know, and I was kind of like, you know, I'm just. I have my own memories and my own experience, and I'm just not really ready, you know, to you know uh, to read something like that. So no, I didn't. I'm I'm curious as to somebody who's close to him, how accurate of a portrayal it is. It comes across as if it's very accurate because Steve is the guy who reached out to him and said, "I want to chronicle my life for posterity," or at, la- at least that That's seems right, to be the yeah. implication. It is, and of course, I'm aware of all the information and content and reputation of Steve out there. And, you know, my, my take on that is that it's not for me to judge. I mean, people mm-hmm. have their own experiences and I'm writing my experience. And so, so, I, so your perspective <clears throat> at Pixar sounds like and reads like it was very, very different than what other people experienced at Apple. Well, you know, again, I can't speak to what they experienced, but I can speak to my experience at Pixar, and, you know, I can say it was, you know, that's something I look back and I I treasure it. So so let's talk a little bit about that process of the IPO. He wants to have Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, the two biggest banks for technology IPOs, on the book, and they both look at it, they assess the risks, and they pass. And what was his response? What was his reaction to that? Well, you know, I think that was a, a blow. Um, and uh, and so, you know, but he didn't, you know, he, he sort of goes quiet in a way. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like there's a big brouhaha over it. It's just was a blow. And, you know, and so we had to regroup. And so, you know, and, and that's what happened. It was, so, so ultimately it ends up being um, Robbie Stevenson, Hambrick and Quist, and Cowan and Company mm-hmm. uh, are the uh, underwriters on the IPO, and he seemed to be pretty comfortable with that. By the way, it's usually Goldman or Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. just to describe Steve Jobs. He insisted on both of them. He thought so. He, thought he said, that. oh, it'll be you know part entertainment, part technology. We'll get them both. <laughs> uh, was that typical of his attitude? Let's do something no one's ever done before, because we can and it'll be great. Yeah, but it's not a because we can. It's it's out of his conviction for sort of the greatness of of what we're doing. I mean, and so whether it picks or Apple later, I mean, it's a reflection of his belief that this work is so is so stunning, is so great that these other people will sort of want to come on board. And so you know, it wasn't like to take advantage. It was just came from that place of you know I really believe in this, and so everyone else will. How infectious was, I mean, we've all heard about his reality distortion field. How infectious was his uh, almost preternatural self-confidence, almost delusional self-confidence in the face of incredibly daunting odds? How much did that impact everyone around him? It's very, it's very infectious. And I think the key is the sort of working with others that can collaborate at, at a level to sort of make those dreams a reality. But the you know, but there's a certain contagiousness to sort of the, the passion and intensity that he brought to what he did. We've been speaking with Lawrence Levy. He was the CFO of Pixar and is the author of To Pixar and Beyond. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things computer-generated animation. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments and feedback. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner & Smith Incorporated. 
Welcome to the podcast extras. Um, Lawrence, thank is it Lawrence or Larry? What do I you go prefer? by Lawrence. I Lawrence. Just my British background. I assumed it was because yes. you were British. That's a, My middle name is Lawrence. Um, so I just assumed you were also a Lawrence. So thank you so much for doing this and being so oh, generous with your time. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I have to tell you, I read a lot of books for this. I'm, I'm Literally, you can see I'm almost done with it. It's a fascinating story that I had no idea about. It's a fast read, and you're actually a very talented storyteller. Well, thank you. So it's I'm I've really been enjoying it. This is like perfect thing for people to take on holiday vacations because it's it's characters you know but don't really know in great depth. Most people who follow any sort of entertainment business or even film at least have an idea of who John Lasseter is. They they've heard of Pixar. You really tell a fascinating story in a very entertaining way. Well, thank I've you. Really, I've really been enjoying it. Um, so we were talking about the IPO was so successful. You obviously um, get a little fun money out of it. Since then, you've been running or operating something called the Juniper Foundation. Juniper Foundation, yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I had another sort of pulse running in me. You know, I had a great career, and I loved what I did, both as a lawyer and as a business executive and a, and a Pixar. But I also sort of took note that there's a sort of a one-dimensional quality to corporate life in a way. It's it's driven. It's an acquisition-oriented mentality. It's all about performance. And, you know, and I thought to myself, you know, there are it produces incredible things, great technologies, a lot of prosperity, a lot of wealth. But there are hidden costs to it. Uh, that performance mentality produces costs in terms of stress and anxiety and personal fulfillment and how we feel about ourselves. And right. I wanted to go off and learn more about that because I felt that we were sort of missing this dimension. And everybody puts their family and themselves second, and very, I shouldn't say everybody, but many people do, and they just get so focused on the rat race, they... Lose sight of what matters. They lose sight of what matters. And so I had been very disciplined about that in my career. So family, my children, my wife, and all of that was always tried my best to prioritize it. But I really wanted to go on a deep dive in that. And so and I was passionately always interested in religion and philosophy. So I went off to discover how one might cultivate that side of life. And I found it eventually in basically, you know, 2000 tradition of Buddhist philosophy and, mm -hmm. and, and, and meditation, um, which I see not as a religious uh, undertaking, but if you look, what I was looking at these things, I was thinking like, wow, like this, these ideas are basically a technology of inner transformation. Right. We're really good at the outer stuff, but the inner stuff that, you know, you need something for that. And here was this sort of whole philosophy. And so that led myself and um, my wife, Hillary, my, the teacher that I had at the time, and still do, um, Segi Rinpoche, and, and two other individuals. We, we founded the Juniper Foundation in 2003, and the question that we set out to answer was, what would it take to embed right in the middle of contemporary life um, a system, a methodology that could be used for this inner transformation? And that system comes from this sort of 2,000-year-old tradition. So there are two things. I, I don't want to use the term trendy because it, it almost has a negative connotation. Yeah. But there are two things, especially on Wall Street and finance these days, that have become really popular. One is meditation. Yes. And the other is mindfulness. Yes. Um, tell us how that fits into the concept of of Buddhism and and what you're doing with the the Juniper Foundation. Well, I think it's great. Uh, uh, you know, meditation and mindfulness, you know, represent sort of an opening, if you will, an awakening, a realization that these things that that impact us inwardly are are important. And so, you know, I'm sort of happy to to see all this. Uh, um, I would say that. Um, those represent like a one piece of the puzzle, um, you know, kind of a thing. And I think if people take that space of meditation or that space of mindfulness, it's like opening a door to a, to a world in which there are all these tools and ideas to cultivate ourselves inwardly. The, the, the key to it is that um, it, it takes some effort. We have to pay attention to do it. And we tend to want a quick fix. We tend to want to be, you know, like I'm stressed. What's going to take me 
out of that quickly. Here's a pill. Um, here's a pill, right, you know, uh, or even, you know, uh, I'll go to a med- meditation retreat or something like that. But it takes an engagement with this kind of methodology. And so, um, and so, you know, Juniper presents that because we present a whole way of looking at, you know, balancing emotions, cultivating compassion, developing insight, all using meditation as the tool to do those things. So that is just a radical break from what you were doing yeah. previously. Uh, what were the in-between steps? How did you go from, okay, I'm a corporate lawyer, now I'm a CFO, the company's public, we're successful, everything is now running the way we want it to, Let's explore the inner space. How, how did that come about? It came, there wasn't much of an in-between. I, I, I just realized that Pixar was in this incredibly good place. The plan that we'd put in place was going to go at least 10 years. I was on the board of directors, and so I would still be able to keep my eye on things. And I realized I, I had an opportunity. I had an opening in my life. And I was just like, what do I do? I'm really interested about these other things. Like, do I wait another 20 years? Will I be around it another 20 years? You know, now is the time kind of a thing. And so that's the decision I made. I said, you know, no, don't don't put it off. You know, this is something that is deep. And, and also in the back of my mind, I thought that one day maybe it would come back around and I would be able to take these new learnings back into that corporate world because I think that the... I, I think we haven't reached the ultimate or the end of sort of the corporate paradigm. I think mm-hmm. that it it has problems in it and as many has much to evolve. And I think it's evolution can come out of these kinds of ideas. So, uh, you know, you end up in, especially in Silicon Valley, with people with kind of, you know, uh, on the East Coast, there would be laughable titles. But on the West Coast, there's a chief happiness officer. Yeah. There's a... There's a director of joy. There's yeah. a like we've we've seen some real. You're laughing and and yeah. you've spent a lot of time out there. Yeah. So you can imagine what jaded New Yorkers think of that. Are we eventually going to see in the corporate world a, a chief um, a mindfulness officer or a director of meditation or is that one step too far? I I think it's a step. I don't think it's the ultimate step. I don't even know if it's the best step. Uh, that the you know it. It's not just about sort of bringing mindfulness and meditation teachers, you know, because that's like putting a Band-Aid on a problem, you mm-hmm. know. And so it's a question of how that entity is going to think and work and whether it um, uh, it wants to take account for the well-being of all the people that it affects both it's not just employees um, but everyone it's customers employees, it's, it's suppliers customers, you know um, the environment and these kinds of things because you know, it's interesting, like, you know, corporations want to be people when it comes to— Well, when it works you know, in their advantage, Like, sure. you know, First Amendment rights, uh, you know— When, it comes, to, when it comes to third-party externalities, uh-huh. they don't want to pay for it. Right, them. but real people, generally speaking, don't have the chance to get away with that, right? If you mm-hmm. start acting up with all the people around you, someone's going to, you know, see you say, hey, Barry, what's going on, right? You know, and so it's a way of thinking, you know, and when the way of thinking is— acquisition at all costs, short-term profit, that's all we care about. You can bring mindfulness and meditation in, but it's like putting a Band-Aid on the problem, you know, because at the very same time, you know, you're teaching mindfulness and meditation, you're also putting enormous pressure on your people to perform. So there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is to um, uh, look at it from that broader perspective and take responsibility for this. And And I think that these kinds of ideas can can infiltrate the corporate paradigm in, in other ways too. That that's quite quite interesting and really not. I don't think a lot of people um, would have expected that from um, a corporate lawyer. But really, your path was very different. And uh, what I enjoyed about reading the book was your approach to problem solving, which is very logical and yet at the same time employed a lot of creativity. So maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that you're now taking a, a, a slightly different focus um, on what you're doing. So I want to go through a couple of questions we missed and then jump into our favorite question. I promise to get you guys out of here on time. I'll see if I can, I can do that. Um, one of the things you had mentioned uh, early in the book is the tension between, and, and this is very relevant to what you were just talking about, the tension between creative integrity 
and real-world necessity. Um, describe that, if you would. Well, these things sort of pull against each other. So, you know, the creative impulse is sort of by necessity, but it needs to be unbound in a way by um, sort of t you know, time or imperatives. You it, Like, a way of thinking of it is like, you can't force the gestation of a story. So mm -hmm. you can't go to someone and say, I want a great story in a year, right? You may get a great story in a weekend, you may get a great story in five years, but you can't force it. And and um, and so what the business imperative wants is that, no, I wanna know, right? I wanna know, I want this, um, I want everything to be sort of orderly and on time and, and because um, that's the only way I can build this thing. And so those things pull against each other. And so the challenge for, organizations trying to do any kind of creative work. It doesn't have to be film. It could be engineering, design, anything, is how to bring harmony between those two things. And it takes a fair amount of courage because business executives kind of want to smother creativity sometimes with bureaucracy. And so it's not easy to allow it to flourish. So later in the book, you're reminding me of something that Steve Jobs said to you and to some of the, the bankers when you were prepping for the IPO a lot of these technologies that seem to have sprung up wholly formed are really the result of many, many years of gestation. It takes a long time to become an overnight sensation. Yeah. And, and he described, uh, you describe in the book how uh, Pixar was developing hardware, they were developing software, they were working on narrative storytelling, and then really a lot of this was a decade in the making no one would have set out, all right, here's what we're going to do for the next 10 years. Here's a new company. We're going to spend 10 years developing hardware and software, rethinking the approach to creating narrative, and then we're going to first start putting out a, a product. Right. So so as a follow-up to that, that creative tension, how true is that today? Do you still think these things take much longer than, than it appears? Was Steve right when he said that? And And what does this mean for us taking all these products for granted that seem to just appear. I think it's as, as true today as any other time. I think great work requires a much longer period of gestation than we think. You know, one of my famous, one of my favorite science fiction authors, Robert Heinlein, he's, he wrote, he said, when we're ready to railroad, we railroad, <laughs> meaning that until we're ready, no railroad. And so, <laughs> That's right. you know, what it means is it takes a long period. A lot of things have to come together. You know, I remember Steve even told me once, you know, when he was thinking about tablets that, you know, he he was passionate about tablets for a long time. You know, Apple had the, Long before the iPad, long, long before the iPhone. Long before, but he felt it wasn't ready. It wasn't ready, right? It wasn't ready. The sort of tools, you know, weren't, weren't there. He had kind of his pulse on that. It was the same with Pixar. You know, it took you know, 15, 20 years for the gestation of everything to come together. And I think it's not that there are never overnight sensations, but I think they're much more rare than we think. Well, what looks mm -hmm. like overnight sensations really is yeah. the result of a lot more yeah. time and effort than people realize. So in corporations today, you know, they're trying to sort of force innovation in a way and uh, or, or force creativity, then um, it doesn't sometimes allow for that, for that process. Mm -hmm. So I have to just digress briefly. You're the third guest out of the previous four or five who drops a reference to science fiction. James Glick, who wrote the book um, The Information and, and Time Traveler, we were, we were geeking out on science fiction. And then I was surprised to learn that Bill McNabb, who's the CEO and chairman of Vanguard, is a giant <laughs> science fiction yeah. geek. Um, and you just referenced Heinlein, yeah. who I am always <laughs> quoting. Oh, you are. We're yeah. in the midst of a horrible election, and everybody yeah. wants to convince the other side that they're right. And I believe it was the notebooks of Lazarus Long mm -hmm. as a quote I use all the time. Never try and teach a pig to sing. Yeah. <laughs> it wastes your time and annoys the pig. That's so and true. that's what the political debate seems <laughs> Absolutely, to be. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you're either preaching to the choir or annoying people who are never going to change their mind. Don't waste your time. Mm -hmm. It really feels that way amongst the citizenry. The yeah. candidates have to do what they have to do, but... It's funny you you went right to uh, Heinlein, who's great. filled with wonderful. He is. Uh, He's amazing. It, it, but mm -hmm. it, I haven't um, finished listening to the, the Jim Glick interview. But if you've read any of his stuff, mm -hmm. 
uh, time travel a history is a really interesting mm-hmm. so so we're gonna we're gonna get to some books soon that's still fresh in my mind because um i'm I, I don't know if you read multiple books at a time i'm i'm finishing two books that and this these okay. are the two books mm-hmm. i'm i'm almost done with um so uh, the run of of films at pixar I, it's like grand slam after grand slam yeah. how on earth is that possible that you careen from Toy Story to Bugs Life to Finding Nemo to The Incredibles to, like at a certain point I remember saying, all right, the streak has to come thudding to an end. But it looks like it could go on indefinitely. How is that possible? Well, Pixar is, you know, despite you sort of see all the, the animation and the story glitz and all of this, but it's a very, very disciplined company when it comes to creativity. And mm-hmm. so um, it has honed over years and years and years sort of systems to um, uh, to develop these films, you know. And so, you know, the Pixar Brain Trust that is very famous and has been written about and the story team and the production team, um, you know, an example of this is, you know, when Pixar finishes a film, it 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 goes through a painful, you know, process of looking at everything that it did wrong. And yeah. this film is like a hit. So you know, the Incredibles comes out like it couldn't be better. Well, you know, there's a group of people at Pixar that spend weeks just you criticizing know, it, picking it apart, picking it apart. You know what went wrong, where we could go better, how can we improve our production processes? And so they never let up. And and then. So that's sort of on the technical production side, you know, on 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 the creative side, the 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 value of what you know they call the brain trust is is and many companies try to duplicate that, but but how to make that work is much much harder than than I think is known, even if you've read about it or know about it, um, because there's a tension in in doing great work, and on the one hand, you need this passionate create an intensity to create and have to have the talent to go along with it. Uh, that's true for a writer, a musician, you know, uh, uh, anything that, that, that is great, creative, innovative work. Uh, but on the other side, you also have to collaborate. You have to yield to those voices that can sort of help shape what you do. And like, if you look back at even Steve's career, I think you see an absence of that yielding right. in some of those products that, that didn't make it. And so, because there's a lot of hubris in the creative side. sure. And so those tensions pull against each other. They're very hubris that you know makes you, you know, talented and creative and passionate and all that, cuts against the very yielding that you need to, to um, uh, sort of keep things in balance and check, and um, which is really important. So, so is that the secret sauce at Pixar? Is they've found the right balance between what we described earlier, the creative tension yeah. and the business necessity. Yeah, and that it it, it is, and um, between that creative drive and and the the collaboration it takes to have all the pieces come together, and I think Pixar mastered that tension. And it's really interesting because even when Pixar slips. And it forgets about that tension for whatever reason. It'll slip mm-hmm. and quickly regroup, you know, to sort of, you know, come back to that. And so it's it's hard to. There are a lot of. There's a lot that goes into that. We could do, I, we could do a whole episode here just on that one really? one so, issue. So so while I still have you, let's talk about some of the Pixar executives you you reference in the book, um, and and spend a little bit of time, but really don't give us a lot of color on them. They're all kind of famous people within the industry, but I would imagine the public doesn't know them that well. So mm-hmm. let's let's go through a few of them quickly. John Lasseter, tell tell us about John. Well, John, and you know, he's probably the you know the most well known. I mean, John is you know the, the the Mozart of his generation when it comes to animation. I mean, storytelling through the medium of animation just courses through John like it like he was born with it or something like that, and. You know, he's a kind of a larger than life, charismatic character. He's very warm. He, you know, greets you with a with a hug. He's interested in you, and um, and he's just endlessly creative. You know, there's a little boy in him, right? Uh-huh. There's like a a little child in him, a twinkle in his eye. Clear, and that is reflected mm-hmm. in all the output of of films yeah. he does. You could see mm-hmm. there is a 
child's wonderment and joy yeah. in everything he yeah. seems to touch. Yeah. I mean, I think his office is full of toys. And when I went there, his office was, was all toys and gadgets. And I don't think he ever lost that kind of, you know, um, that creative inquiry. Brad Bird. Well, Brad came on later, you know, to, to direct The Incredibles, you know. and Which was so mm -hmm. different than the previous yeah. films. Mm -hmm. there, there was a family relationship you could sort of see oh this is intellectually similar but it looked and felt so different yeah brad is a very very disciplined filmmaker and it's it's you know when when a, a crew the it's like a crew's like full in love with brad I, you know he has kind of a mesmerizing quality over the it's a very large crew and and they're pushed to do a lot of things and he's a great sort of uh, leader and um and and so um, so when he comes on to do Incredibles and he's done live action films as well, you know, with Mission Impossible. But um, so people sort of uh, like, like take to him. They, he has a natural leadership that complements his his creativity. Tell us about Lee. Uh, Lee is it's funny, you know, when I was at, started at Pixar, Lee was uh, editor. He was, you know, an mm -hmm. editor. But, you know, John recognized this sort of creative talent in Lee and kept trying to, you know, bring that out. So. Lee is um, a little sort of he's sort of more understated, quieter by nature, and um, but an incredible sort of force of filmmaking. He's a guy that sort of like knows everything about filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And there's a list of thirty or forty or probably hundreds of people I can ask, but I would be yeah. um, remiss if I didn't ask about Ed Catmull. Well, you know, Ed is my great friend, and you know, beloved by everyone at Pixar as it's sort of. Uh, a co-founder but ed is and, and i think it's because you know ed is sort of professorial you know almost by nature you know he's and a, that, is, that you know, comes across a little bit in your your yeah. depiction of it he's a listener you know he's very very attentive he's a learner you know what i mean he's i've never mm -hmm. known him to be otherwise and so he learns he absorbs he listens he talks he's always respectful um and and then he kind of and 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 then so the, and then when he does put things together and he says you know his views about things you're always kind of like uh, he's not the loud booming voice in the room if you have heard him speak sure. yes a great speaking voice uh, it's kind of an understated speaking voice but he's a voice that you like want to listen to what he has to say because he's he's sort of put it together in ways that matter a lot so he's he's wonderful it it sounded like this was just a collection of rock stars everybody at Pixar was really astonishingly talented and everybody was more or less pulling together in the same direction, which is really hard to do with a, a complicated project like like you were undertaking that. It is really hard to do. And I think Pixar is a collection of rock stars. I think a lot of companies are, you know, collections of, of have a lot of rock stars. But I, what Pixar did was to honor that. And that sometimes is is because it doesn't matter, you know, someone could be a production assistant or working on the budget of the film. It doesn't have to be, you know, I, I'm directing, you know, the film or something like that. Um, and by honoring all of that, uh, it matters to the culture. And and sometimes that's easy to forget within companies, you know, what that means to really respect and honor people. You You, you had written about how important corporate culture is and there was concern when... Pixar was being acquired by Disney, that that culture would get destroyed. So two questions. First, what what was done to make sure that transition was okay? And second, is the Pixar culture still intact, even though it's a, a part of Disney? Yes. I mean, it's, it's funny in an acquisition, but I, I would say that when a lot of money is at stake, right, and that's what everyone's talking about, but that was the single most important point in that deal was the preservation of Pixar's culture. And I think that if we hadn't believed Bob Iger's sincerity in that, mm -hmm. um, then that acquisition would not have happened. And so, you know, Bob promised that Pixar's culture would be intact. And in fact, he wanted to sort of infect Disney animation, you know, with with uh, Pixar's culture. And, and he completely came through on that. And so I think if you visit Pixar today, all the things that I've been talking about, they're working very hard to try to keep that in place. Mm -hmm. So I know I only have you for a, a limited amount of time. Let me jump to my favorite podcast questions. I ask all my guests. We we talked about your background and what you did before Pixar. Um, who are some of your early mentors? 
Well, I always have had mentors. Um, I believe very strongly in that. This is the whole collaboration part. I've mm -hmm. always had uh, sort of what I consider to be a, um, an inner circle of people that I really trust, that have got my back, and that I listen to. So, you know, uh, uh, early on, you know, well, Larry Sonsini, for sure. You, you described mm -hmm. that relationship yeah. in the book. Yeah, for sure. Effie Arazi, who was giving me my first job in electronics for imaging, um, you know, I would go on. I have to include my wife, Hillary, in that in 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 that circle. Um, Segi Rinpoche, who's been my mentor and teacher on this new you know path that that I'm doing now, and and even in writing the book, I've had incredible mentors to sort of help me. So that's so uh, you really accomplished a lot at Pixar. What business people influenced your approach to what you did at Pixar? Well, you know, at Pixar, the people that I've talking about, I mean, and in business, I cut my teeth a lot with Effie Arazi. Effie, who's who's passed on now, but uh, he was a brilliant entrepreneur He's from so Israel. So Israeli, Israeli entrepreneur came to the U.S. Came to the States. I mean, he was. It's funny, you know. He was known as the Steve Jobs of Israel because <laughs> of he he created the company called Cytex, which has put them on the map from a technology mm -hmm. point of view. But um, put the whole country you know, on. Yes. You know, Israel has become known as a, a hot hotbed of high tech that was the first really big success it was the first really big company. success and it was uh, it was him who did it and um and so we you know we built that first company electronics for imaging together and um and he was brilliant and i i learned a lot from him and i also you know but i had the advantage because when i was a lawyer i was sort of a business lawyer because i was doing these transactions for all these companies these startups that were trying to you know break in and doing deals with all these big companies so i met a whole bunch of ceos you know, Ken Oshman, who was the founder, old time founder of Rome, and then was doing another company called Echelon. And so I had, you know, a lot of interaction with uh, different people in Silicon Valley. And so I, you know, started absorbing a lot from them. And then and then I met Effie and then, of course, Steve. So mm -hmm. that that's quite a Sasani, mm -hmm. Effie and yeah. Steve Jobs for pretty, pretty good mentors to have. In, yeah, in no, the... I've been on that front. I've been very fortunate. So. Let's talk about books. So uh, I mentioned I enjoyed this. Tell me about some books that, that you've enjoyed, fiction, nonfiction, technology, it doesn't matter. What what sort of books have you really read and, and have resonated with you? Well, I, I'm an avid reader, so there's a lot, but uh, I, I am an avid. By the way, I constantly get emails from, from listeners who say, what was the book he referenced? I couldn't find it. Could you people really want to hear book recommendations more than anything else. So feel free to go over as many books as you like. Well, I certainly like a lot of Heinen books. I am a bit of a science fiction buff. Brandon Sanderson's um, uh, series that that, um, uh, that that he's doing now, The uh, Way of Kings, is um, absolutely brilliant. Um, I, um, for, as far as literature is concerned, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain mm -hmm. uh, had a big influence on me. That's a big undertaking. Uh, he also wrote Death in Venice, and I thought these are very powerful literary literary books. Um, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, mm -hmm. big influence um, uh, on Especially me. for anyone mm -hmm. in, in narrative mm -hmm. storytelling and mythology. Yes. Mythology, and... absolutely brilliant. And I watched all of Joseph Campbell's videos that he did on PBS mm -hmm. uh, uh, many years ago. Um, and now, you know, I'm into sort of, you know, 500-year-old, you know, sort of Buddhist philosophy. You know, there's a book, um, The Great Stages of the Path, by a great teacher called Jade Songkupper, um, T-S-O-N-G-K-P-A. That's a very challenging undertaking, but you know, so it sort of took me years to work my way through that. Um, and uh, so there's... Uh, there's a few that come to mind. Um, oh, I, a recent one. Gosh, I've, um, uh, um, one of the inspirations for this book was uh, The Boys in the Boat. Um, boys in boys the in Boat. The boat. Not Boys in the Band. No, boys The Boys in the, in the Boat. Um, um, that sounds you know, absolutely familiar. incredible. It's been an absolutely incredible story about the U.S. Uh, rowing team and a um, uh, huge bestseller in, um, in going to uh, Germany in 1936. Huh. Dan Brown. Dan Brown is the author of Boys in the Boat. And oh, I don't know if you've read Ready Player One, um, which is no. the current. That's just super fun. Really, just a super fun. Uh, Ready um, Player Re One. Ready Player One. I think 
Steven Spielberg is making that into a movie. Oh, really? That's um, very interesting. So, um, uh, so there's a few for you. So, mm-hmm. aside from um, reading, what do you do outside of the office? What do you do to relax? What do you st- do to stay fit? Uh, that's a question that I get from readers all the time about guests. I've been sort of a bit of a fitness buff, and so during you know when I was working really hard, I was I ran, you know, and I was always just if I could go out and just run like you know even two or three miles, like you know five or six days a week, I did that all the time, and then. A few years ago, I started reading you know, as you get a little bit older, it's resistance training is good. So I took up sort of weight training in the gym and I do that, you know, regularly now. So I find that exercise is, um, you know, there's huge benefits to it. Um, and then, of course, I, I do a lot of meditation and practice. So that's an important part of my life. And and then, you know, you know, my um, family still loves to sit around and watch, you know, Gilmore Girls and The Voice. And so, you know, that's. <laughs> What we do for, uh, for for entertainment. So my last two questions, these are my favorite questions. If a millennial or a recent college graduate were to come up to you and say, I'm interested in a career in law or business or entertainment, what sort of advice would you give them? Uh, I, I, the advice I would give them is that regardless of what you're interested in, get some deep experience in something, in anything. Um you know, what I see a little bit is sort of jumping around, um, you know, uh, and what I think is uh, more important is to just go deeply into something for a while. So don't just mm-hmm. skim the surface, really learn a, 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 at least it's, some area. Some area, even if it's not what you ultimately want to do. Um, I mean, I've given this advice, you know, to my own children, you know, and and so because I think it's in going deeply in something. And this also gets us back a little bit to the meditation as well, which is that it's the going deeply into something that crafts us. You know, it's mm-hmm. easy to stay on the surface, but it's when things get rough. It's when, you know, you're, you're having, you know, difficult time getting a project done or a hard time with a boss or this material doesn't make any sense or, you know, like meditation is really hard or I don't understand this point of philosophy, whatever it is, it's that's what shapes us, you know. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I take an analogy like to a mountain. If you want to um, climb a mountain, you have to pick a path. Um, and if you're constantly circling around looking for the best path, you'll never climb the mountain. And so you reference the, that in the book. You talk about we were just circling. We we're really needed circling. a foothold. So I say to young, you know, uh, you know, people as well, climb a mountain. You know, it doesn't have to be the ultimate mountain or the only mountain. You know, there are lots of mountains to climb, but but at, at least climb a mountain and then go through the rigor of that, and then you'll figure out what the next mountain is. And and our final question: What is it that you know about? the entertainment industry and and running a company such as Pixar that you wish you knew 25 years ago when you started on this endeavor? Oh, I don't know. You know, that's a that's a really good question. I kind of go into everything with a fresh mind. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I don't even, wouldn't even know how to answer that. You know, there's, I wouldn't... Uh, change it like if i'd known more then i wouldn't the experience wouldn't have been the same i'm asking a buddhist and i (laughs) as i was saying the words i know the correct answer is it is the path not the destination so i as the but i ask everybody that and i knew i was going nowhere as soon as the words stumbled (laughs) out of my mouth lawrence thank you so much for for having this conversation with us thank you barry it's really been fascinating if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you could see any of the other, I want to say, 112 or so conversations we've had over the past two years. We love your comments and feedback. Be sure and write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Mike Batnick, and my booker, Taylor Riggs, for helping out. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC.